Hello and welcome to the VJ Himong podcast. We are a global open access multimedia channel that brings you the latest research updates in hematological oncology. Today we will be discussing late breaking data surrounding the development of driver mutations in MPNs, including JAK2 and DNMT3A mutations, as well as promising updates on the manifest and pioneer studies. First up, we are joined by Giotin Angelia of Welcome Sanger Institute, who will discuss the timing of driver mutations and clonal dynamics in adult MPN. Thank you for inviting me to speak about our late-breaking abstract that uh, we will be presenting at the American Society of Hematology 2020 conference. As a hematologist, some of the most common questions that we get asked by patients um, that have a blood cancer are, how long have I had it for? Oh, how fast did the cancer grow? And we set out to answer this in the myeloproliferative neoplasms, which were chronic hematological malignancy. We took 10 patients with MPN uh, who presented with disease between the ages of 20 and in their 70s. We took single blood cells from these individual patients and grew each cell into a colony of cells. And then we performed whole genome sequencing of each individual colony. In total, we sequenced up to about a thousand whole genomes across the 10 patients. And by sequencing at such a large scale, we were then able to use all the naturally occurring spontaneous mutations that we accumulate in our hematopoietic stem cells with age. And we could use those mutations, a total of about half a million mutations, to draw a family tree of the relationship between the blood cells within individual patients. And by drawing those family trees, which reveal the ancestry of those blood cells, we could then time the driver mutations that cause MPN. And we know that the majority um, of MPNs are caused by driver mutations in one of a few genes, in particular the JAK2 gene, but many patients have mutations in additional cancer-associated genes, such as mutations in DNMT3A. Uh, what we found was quite striking. We found that the JAK2 mutation was often acquired very early in life, um, in childhood and possibly even in utero. Indeed, um, when patients where the JAK2 mutation was acquired as the first event or the only event driving their MPN, it was acquired at the very latest um, up to four months or up to the age of about 11 years. Um, in many of our patients. JAK2 mutations could also be acquired second, though, in these diseases. In many of our patients, some of their other cancer-associated mutations were also acquired incredibly early. Um, in two patients, we found DNMT3A mutations that occurred within weeks of life. So in utero, um, up to a couple of weeks post-conception. And DNMT3A mutations are one of the commonest mutations associated in clonal hematopoiesis. And we've often thought that aging in some way promotes the outgrowth of these mutations. But actually, what we found is it's not that aging per se drives clonal hematopoiesis, it's that these mutations simply take an age to grow. So overall, we found in these patients that these driving mutations occur very early. They grow and evolve over a lifetime to cause disease, regardless of whether disease presents in your 20s or in your 70s, your mutations occur very early and evolve very slowly. What was also important is that the, the rate of growth of the clones is different in different patients. And we found that the faster that the clones are growing, 
the more likely you are to present with disease sooner. So what we saw is that the latency between JAK2 mutation acquisition and MPNs was over 30 years, in one patient over 50 years, and that the stronger the selection on those driver mutations, the quicker one gets their diagnosis. So this really now raises questions as to how we define MPNs, given that they have been with the patient, these driving mutations and clonal outgrowth has been a lifelong process. And it also raises questions as to how perhaps we could use this information to um, better early detect and prevent MPNs because we, we now could use this information to both detect patients early and estimate which patients are on a trajectory to future complications. Our data is not yet published, but we hope to publish it soon. So for now, these data are preliminary, but we're very excited about the results. And the next questions will then be also about other blood cancers in terms of the trajectory of those, you know, which blood cancers have a shorter trajectory, which other blood cancers or forms of clonal hematopoiesis have a lifelong trajectory. And it's really those questions of understanding the origins and the evolutions of these blood cancers that are critical for programs aimed at early detection and prevention. Secondly, Surgeon Verstovsek of the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center will update us on the progress made in the Phase II manifest study, which investigates the use of a novel BAT inhibitor for myelofibrosis. Manifest study is quite extensive study. And so to give you perspective, what we are talking about here is the new medication. It has no name. It's called CPI-610. It is a a BET inhibitor, maybe hard to understand. Uh, let me make it simple. It is one of the medications, so-called epigenetic modifiers, modifies the gene expression. That's, I think, a simple explanation. It's a pill. It's a, 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 a study that uh, has multiple different arms. This CPI-610 is addition to ruxolitinib, a standard JAK inhibitor therapy in frontline setting. It is addition to ruxolitinib in people who have already been on ruxolitinib and are still on it, but have a suboptimal response. And there is another arm where you studied it as a single agent after ruxolitinib once the people fail. And in all of these case scenarios, we also look at the benefits on a spleen and the symptoms as well as on anemia. Does it improve the anemia? So I actually was presenting the part where people uh, who are on ruxolitinib have suboptimal response, get the CPI on top, like add-on approach, and we report that it does improve the symptoms and the spleen, and it has some anemia benefit as well. In fact, it has been shown to be active across the board in any of these situations to different extent. And based on these results, this presentation that I'm presenting and others that uh, are included in ASH presentations, on different parts of this complex study, suggest its activity, and we are looking forward to open soon globally a phase three randomized study for possible approval of CPI-610 as it's combined in a frontline setting from the day one with ruxolitinib together to possibly provide more of the spleen and symptoms benefit than ruxolitinib alone. So that's the next phase three study for its possible approval. Finally, Sam Akin of the University of Michigan shares data from the ongoing Phase II Pioneer trial exploring the role of avapritinib on the total symptom score of indolent systemic mastocytosis. The Pioneer study is a study looking at the effects of uh, 
tyrosine kinase inhibitor called evapritinib, which is a selective inhibitor of KIT-B816V mutation. There is a driver mutation in systemic mastocytosis. Uh, and this is a disorder that uh, originates in the bone marrow and uh, it occurs, this mutation occurs in a stem cell that drives the proliferation and activation of mast cells. Uh, mastocytosis has different uh, clinical varieties uh, and the most common variety is uh, something called indolent systemic mastocytosis. Uh, there are also advanced variants uh, which are associated with leukemias and uh, tissue dysfunction and has uh, poor uh, survival. Uh, but the patients with indolent mastocytosis, the most common variant, have a near normal life expectancy and uh, they suffer from symptoms of mast cell activation uh, because there are no curative options available uh, so far to uh, get rid of this disease. And we typically um, take a conservative approach with these patients rather than subjecting them to cytoreductive therapies uh, so far, and mainly because the available cytoreduction options uh, have been very toxic, like cladribine, stem cell transplantation, they are more, uh, uh, they have significant toxicities like myelosuppression and so on uh, to be used in this population. Um, so mitostorin was approved a few years ago uh, for the treatment of adva advanced uh, variants. Uh, uh, so, but at this time there are no approved therapies uh, for cytoreduction in indolent disease. So the pioneer was a trial to look at the efficacy of uh, this selective uh, D816V inhibitor, avapritinib, in indolent population. And in the part one uh, of the study, it was a dose-finding study uh, to find the dose to be used in the part two. And we essentially um, randomized the patients to uh, three avapritinib dose groups, 25, 50, and 100, and a placebo. And each uh, of those... Uh, groups had 10 patients and a placebo had nine. And uh, we assessed the symptom scores uh, by using a tool called uh, ISM-SAF symptom assessment form uh, that looks at 11 different uh, symptom domains uh, and the patients self uh, uh, score their uh, symptoms based on zero to 10. And, uh, and uh, uh, the, the trial outcome, uh, the efficacy of the drug and the adverse events uh, were recorded. Trial, um, uh, we, uh, so, uh, the, the company selected the 25 milligram dosing as the uh, dose that is uh, effective at adverse events. And at that dose, uh, the, the drug reduced the symptoms by 30% in all dose groups. And uh, uh, there were no uh, serious adverse events, grade four or five events uh, in this trial. There were some grade three adverse events in 50 and 100 milligram dosing, but 25 milligram dosing was very well tolerated. The most common adverse effects were limited to some mild fluid reten retention, uh, nausea, uh, diarrhea, and headaches. So, uh, and uh, this improvement in symptoms were also associated with objective reductions in mast cell burden, like tryptase levels, the allelic uh, fraction of the D816V mutation and the bone marrow mast cell burden. And, uh, and also rather very importantly for the patient, uh, the reduction in skin lesions 
uh, in, in these patients. Um, so based on these uh, was designed and uh, part two is uh, uh, open to enrollment at this time and it randomizes the patients uh, into 25 milligram of aripritinib versus placebo uh, in a two to one ratio. And again, uh, the uh, primary outcome would be the symptom reduction by 30% uh, using the symptom assessment form. Uh, and uh, the patients will be on either placebo or the active drug for uh, six months, and then everybody will be switched uh, over to uh, 25 milligrams of everpritinib, which will be the part three uh, of the study. So the trial enrolls in 50 different uh, centers in Europe and the United States, and um, and we are uh, excited to uh, have uh, have uh, this trial. Um, uh, taking off. Thank you for listening. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Apple and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver expert-led content to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJHimong to join in the conversation and visit VJHimong.com for the latest updates in the field. We look forward to you joining us for the next one.